You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. Journalists look at how the media are covering homelessness. Two other reporters that I spoke to lived in their car, lived in a garage. Oh, no, no, I was never homeless. So there they are identifying with housed people because to them, the look of homelessness is an extreme. I just get to leave after I finish interviewing people. I take what they say, I write it down, I write an article about it, and then I just go home. And a plan for statewide rent control advances in the legislature. Over the past decade, the average income has not improved at all. Average rents have gone up by a third. All on this episode of Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. I'm Laura Wenis. You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. I'm Laura Wenis. People are being swept aside like objects. Uh, and so we would go and report when that was happening in the exact same way that reporters get screamed at by different people who are unhappy with what they have written. I'm sure that people who are city officials who are responsible for for dealing with this crisis, that they are on the receiving end of very strong opinions, probably not always expressed very politely. At the same time, as journalists, part of our role is accountability. That was me last year, speaking in the mini-documentary Framed, Bay Area Homelessness and Media Coverage, which looks at how journalists have been covering the crisis of homelessness in San Francisco. The video was created by Sylvie Sturm, herself a journalist and editor as well as a returning student at San Francisco State University, looking at how other members of our profession have been reporting on homelessness during what's known as the SF Homeless Project an annual media blitz coordinated by the San Francisco Chronicle beginning in 2015. Chronicle editor-in-chief, Audrey Cooper. Nobody could escape a story about the causes and solutions of homelessness. Then maybe we could cut through the sort of noise on the issue and say, you know, this is, this is not okay and we need to do something else. I have no tolerance for, here's a sad story about a homeless person. Those stories contribute, I think, to the noise around the issue. Um, They don't really teach us how we need to move forward. So I'm much more interested in stories that will expose um, why a situation got like this, how we can fix it, what possible solutions are working, who's trying new ideas, who's not trying new ideas. Um, how our money is being spent, how it's being misspent. Sylvie asked me about my work for Mission Local, where I had been reporting until the end of 2017. When Sylvie sat down to talk with me for Civic, I got to ask about her investigation and what Bay Area media is and isn't telling us about the homelessness crisis. What can you tell me about, like... How you got to this point? This was a because you're you're like an established journalist. Yes, you know what you're doing, but you were at SF State. Yes, so I'm from Canada. I started a bachelor's degree back in 2008. Um, I got two years into it, and then I was hired on, on my first paper. So I started working right away. Um, I worked for 12 years in print, primarily. Um, I had been an editor in chief and a managing editor. Um, That's how I I rose up to that rank, I guess. And then the newspaper that I worked for shut down after 100 years. Yeah. So that's the way the industry was going. Yeah. So I took um, my layoff 
uh, monies, and I went to Nicaragua, and I spent a year there. And so when I was there, I met um, a really nice American man and uh, married him and moved to South San Francisco and finished my bachelor's degree so that I can then move on and actually get a master's degree in journalism. So thank you for doing this research, and thank you for talking with me about it. I think it's really interesting to see that a journalist came in and said, well, what did the SF Homeless Project actually accomplish? Which is um, a question that you get into toward the end of the video that you put together from this research. Overall, did you get the sense that the coordinated coverage, the day, the media blitz achieved anything? My research was more around how the media had been reporting on homelessness previous to the project, how it had been reporting on homelessness after the project, and to see if there was any sort of advancement in um, depth. I found that there was some sort of advancement definitely during the Blitz. So definitely, I think that the idea of solutions-oriented journalism was more advanced. So people talking about the ideas that the government is putting forward, the ideas that charities are putting forward, the ideas that um, individuals are putting forward to solve the problem. For that cause, I think that that was a little bit of an advancement. This took a lot of work. You talked to a lot of different journalists. You talked to other people who are more service providers. And you also surveyed 300 news articles in the Bay Area to analyze their content. How massive an undertaking was this? How long did it take you? And what did what was the process like for you? It was tedious. <laughs> Uh, it, it took quite a while. I was working, um, I was trying to accomplish this alongside other work that I was doing. So it did take quite a while. I'm still working on it, actually. Uh, it's a pro pilot project right now for a bigger study. And I'm up to, you know, double that amount of stories now. So I would take the stories and analyze them for different aspects of the stories. What we do in journalism is we decide who's important to talk to as an expert. We decide what angle is important. And so all of that creates a framing device around a story. So really what I was trying to do is determine what thematic structures and what framing the journalist was using. So some of those could be this depicting a homeless person in a criminal way, saying that, you know, just talking about the criminality of whatever they're doing, whether it's drug use or violence or something like that. Another way would be to frame it as a government responsibility. Uh, yet another way would be to frame it as a social issue, moral issue, a charitable issue. So um, I coded it for those sort of aspects. Um, and I found that you know, just about a third of the stories were actually framed as a government responsibility. I don't know whether that's surprising or not. And it's also interesting that about 15% of stories framed homelessness in terms of criminal activity, bad choices, or bad behavior. And some of the feedback that I heard in the video that you produced is from a variety of people that news tends to focus on the criminality. Did you see any disconnect between what journalists and outside stakeholders saw in or perceived in coverage and what you actually found when you coded it and analyzed it in this more objective way? I ask because it doesn't seem to me like the news necessarily always focuses on criminality if it's just 15%, according to your analysis. Exactly. No, it doesn't actually focus on criminality that often. Um, certain journalists get a lot 
of attention um, and a lot of flack for the way that they, um, basically what they do is they identify with uh, housed people more than unhoused people. So the way that housed people perceive homelessness is as you know, something that impacts their lives in a negative way. When it's the most extreme form of uh, homelessness, it is sort of so in your face, that's the way that housed people are going to see it. Certain journalists identify more with that um, perception, and then they'll write a column, an opinion column, or they'll frame their stories in that way. Um, and that gets a lot of attention. So it isn't uh, the majority of journalists that write that way, but it is uh, the loud um, minority, let's say. Let's listen to two of those journalists who Sylvie spoke with in her video Framed. First, Phil Mateer of the San Francisco Chronicle and former Chronicle columnist C.W. Nevius, who now writes about sports for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. At the end, you'll hear Chronicle editor-in-chief Audrey Cooper. They would say you, you always bring out these shortcomings. I'm not anti-homeless. I just, whether it's that or crime or breaking into car windows, uh, you know, if you tell me it's sunny and it's raining, I'm, I'm not going to report that it's sunny. Yeah, they got a little mad at me because I wasn't I wasn't telling their lie, so they kind of created a, a narrative that I was unsympathetic to the homeless, which I didn't really think I was. So I think keeping an open mind is really is really important. Um, my critics will probably tell you I didn't keep one, but I, I thought I did. I really came to believe it was it was a really good idea. And that's what they call a safe injection center. It's less of a problem in terms of needles. In uh, Vancouver, Canada, where they have a safe injection center, they feel like they're getting a much better response to getting people into counseling for addiction. So uh, it's, a, it's kind of a win-win-win. I think the newspaper should piss you off, and it should piss you off because you see opinions you don't agree with, and you should see some that you do agree with, and those should challenge you to rethink what you believe or recommit yourself to what you believe. So people who get upset about that stuff, I think, are just being really intellectually lazy. When we focus on the negativity, the nimbyism, the infighting between officials and advocates, um, what we're not talking about is cause. So one of the premier journalists in San Francisco on homelessness, Kevin Fagan, who works for The Chronicle, he was saying during my interview with him that there isn't enough uh, discussion about federal funding that was cut off in the 1980s. Getting to the macro view, cutting the hell out of out of taxes so that government doesn't have the ability to launch programs that could actually address this is, is one huge factor that doesn't get reported on enough because it's, it's saying the same goddamn thing over and over and over and over. So an active disinvestment in the resources that people need to not be homeless or to stay housed and stable. Exactly. And that is not being discussed enough. If you discuss the causes, then you can naturally lead to solutions. One thing that really struck me in the video that you did about your research is you wrote that 7% of the stories you looked at referenced the causes of homelessness. 7% is like nothing. And more than 45% of stories focused on solutions. How are we as journalists doing this? How are we coming up with solutions or, or not, we're not coming up with them ourselves, but how are we trying to get at the solutions when we don't even report on the causes? Because we're following the lead from governments and other stakeholders. For example, uh, the Tipping Point Foundation just announced that they're going to buy up and create uh, 1,100 new housing units in 11 different San Francisco districts or throughout the city, which is 
a solution. Sounds great. Doesn't talk about the cause. Doesn't talk about the lack of housing, how that happened. There are many people who come up with solutions. People come up with all sorts of ideas and solutions. That doesn't necessarily address the cause. It also is really interesting that we sort of feel this pressure to come up with solutions. I think there's certainly this perception among people who see homelessness but don't work extensively with homeless communities or don't get really involved in the government or, or political aspects of it, who just want an answer, who just want it gone. They don't want to have to see it anymore. And I hear that around me all the time. You know, you have to see people's tents, you have to run into people, you get asked for money. I mean, aside from the inherent sometimes problems with that approach to things, that is what people want. And I think that both journalists and and government officials are sort of responding to that pressure of we want answers, we want a solution, we need to fix this now. How is this so hard, you know? And it's it struck me so much that you're looking at really what the coverage has gone into and so little of the work is being done on why are people here. Did you come across in your research any good answers to that question? Why are people living on the streets? One uh, overarching theme has been that the economic issue, people coming up against financial barriers because of the... Uh, lack of housing, the skyrocketing price of rentals um, and all that sort of thing. And it's sort of completely linked to the boom in Silicon Valley, the tech boom. So that is pretty much the fallback for everybody in terms of what the cause is. Those people who said, we don't want to see it anymore, and those people who are putting the, that much pressure on the politicians, and those are the people that the politicians are listening to, the ones, again, the loudest ones in the room, we don't want to see this anymore. We have to do something about this. What they're not what they're not getting is that there's a diversity of people who are homeless out there. There isn't just one type of extreme homelessness living on the sidewalk in that there there are degrees of homelessness. And there are people who first, couch surf, then live in cars, then definitely a lot of steps towards that extreme sort of visible homelessness. And that's not being addressed. And even when I spoke to a couple of reporters, one of the questions I had for them was, have you ever experienced homelessness? And only one reporter said yes. And she recognized that when she was couch surfing at her father-in-law's place for three months, and also living in a car, because she had to get to work on time because she lived, you know, she her so far away. She recognized that that is homelessness. Two other reporters that I spoke to did the same thing back in the, you know, their youth, lived in their car, lived in a garage. Oh, no, no, I was never homeless. Wow. So, again, there's, there they are identifying with housed people because to them, the look of homelessness is an extreme. And certainly not them. Certainly not them. That's really interesting because it relates to what I'm hearing from some service providers who work with families who are homeless and that they're really struggling to get the recognition for families who are in really dire circumstances but who might not fit that image that we have of what a stereotypical homeless person looks like. And it can be hard, I think, to overcome this ingrained image of this is what homelessness is and, and looks like, and this is what we want to address. So it sort of limits our solutions in a way if we have one idea of what the problem actually looks like. 
Exactly. Um, the other problem, too, uh, possibly with reporting uh, on homelessness is that the media tends to take the government's word on everything. When the press release is issued, when the press conference is given, what is said officially is true. I've spoken to homelessness advocates who are frustrated with that. They don't want to be put in the position of being the foil the way that they are all the time, but they also wish that there was a little bit more research done before the media reports on everything that the government says as is. Here's Jennifer Friedenbach, director of the Coalition on Homelessness, talking to Sylvie for her video, Framed. The media always tends to think of department heads and policy figures who work for the city as the experts on the issue and kind of leans towards them without questioning um, the information that they're giving and very opposite is constantly questioning our motives and questioning our information. We're kind of like relied on as the opposing voice. If you look at most of the stories, voices of homeless people directly are, are often left out. I mean, we all know that politics is partially about votes and about perception of the politician doing well and, and the city doing well. And that's not to say that the government isn't working very, very hard to, to do what it can to solve this problem and to help people who are unhoused. But to take everything that they say at their word, I mean, we are reporters, we are journalists, we should do a little bit of legwork, I think. I think possibly better coverage would be going to attend encampment and looking at people as they live their lives day to day. When you talk to homelessness advocates, they'll tell you that there's community, there's people who protect each other, there's people who just find a sense of community where they can. It's not because they don't, they don't have a house, that doesn't mean that they can't create a community for themselves. I don't want to be Pollyannish about it because I know that when you talk to Kevin Fagan, he actually lived on the streets for six months as part of a, an investigative journalism project that he did in 2003 called uh, Shame of the City. He has a very realistic perception of the way that unhoused people live. And there, there is a lot of violence. There's, uh, there's crime. There's uh, drug use. Um, those, things that, those are things that need to be addressed. Um, so I don't want to say that, you know, um, it's easy just to snap a finger and have people reintegrate into um, a housed situation. But a huge percentage of unhoused people are just wait, trying to find a roof over their head. We'll end with San Francisco Chronicle reporter Kevin Fagan's perspective that he shared in Framed from his reporting while living on the streets. We stayed out in the streets for six months and... Um, and the people that we saw became our guides for what worked and what didn't. We saw them go in and out of jail, in and out of hospitals, uh, in and out of uh, uh, temporary hotel rooms, uh, friends' couches, doing that cycle. Then I went and I started talking to experts, the officials, the guys, the, the people who ran the city's homeless programs and street counselors. If you're just going to do stories purely from the street, you get a really different view. It's a, it's a view of frustration and want and need, and uh, uh, it doesn't see the other side, which represents what's available and why. You can read our conversation and find a link to Sylvie's video framed at sfpublicpress.org. You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press.
KSFP and the San Francisco Public Press are supported by listeners like you. Learn more about our membership program and join the public press at sfpublicpress.org donate. You can make a donation online or send a check to the San Francisco Public Press, 44 Page Street, Suite 504, San Francisco, California, 94102. Thank you, and thanks to the thousands of donors who have made our work possible for 10 years. This is KSFPLP, San Francisco 102.5 FM. Julian Mark is a reporter at Mission Local and covers homelessness because you have to in San Francisco. He's been a journalist in the Bay Area for about five years. Julian, welcome. Hi. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by talking about covering homelessness. Like I said, you kind of have to if you're a reporter in San Francisco. What is difficult for you about reporting on homelessness, if anything? Of all things that I cover, the police, city politics, business, um, it is actually, it really is just the most uncomfortable um, thing to cover because you have to go and, and, you're, and you're speaking to these people and it really just, you know, is a, uh, a reminder of the privilege that I have and I just get to leave. After I finish interviewing people, I uh, take what they say, I write it down, um, I write an article about it and then I just go home. And I am back to my comfortable life. Meanwhile, you know, the people who spent 15 minutes with me are still there and they're still suffering. So that's difficult for me just to go in and get what I need, write an article, and then not really know whether or not the article has actually made, made a difference. We just heard from Sylvie Sturm, a journalist who has looked at and analyzed coverage of homelessness. And one of the things that stands out about her analysis is that it's actually not that common to hear from homeless people in stories about homelessness unless it's to emphasize the tragedy of their circumstance. So in in a way, I mean, the fact that it's a regular part of your reporting to go out and talk to people about their situations. I mean, do you think that do you think you do a good job of that? Um, I don't do as good a job as I can. And I think that a lot of the homeless stories I write are kind of from this uh, top to bottom format where you hear about some city policy and, uh, you know, some new approach, the navigation center this, the navigation center that, and then you go out and, you know, ask people, homeless people, well, you know, what do you think of this? Or, uh, you know, rarely, and I believe that, you know, Laura Laura Waxman and, and you, when you were reporting for Mission Local, um, you know, did a great job of actually starting um, stories from the source of homelessness. And that is getting the stories from people and then going to the city and asking, well, what about this? What about this? And that is approach that you see very, I don't see as much of in San Francisco, especially now, especially because homelessness is framed as a problem for everybody else, I think, except for the homeless people. It's a problem for everybody else. Uh, a problem. It's everybody else's problem. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's. I do think that reducing homelessness, the policies to make streets cleaner, even the navigation center, I think, at 1515 South Van Ness, which went in around 2017, the success is that there are just not very many tents that we can see. And so I think that larger publications who have wealthier audiences, you know, tend to frame it in that way. It will not be as visible to you anymore. Yeah, they're writing to their audiences. Yes, and that is the 
that's the solution. Even the language yeah. of this frames it in terms of the impact on people who are housed. I mean, I remember looking at a document from the city yeah. the other day or a couple of weeks ago that wrote in terms of the how much neighborhoods have been impacted by tent encampments. I mean, what is the impact of a right. tent encampment on a neighborhood? Right. Is there a way to really right. say what the impact is besides right. that people are inconvenienced? Yeah. I, I do think that the percentages that the documentary pointed out was that there are very few articles that talk about the causes of of homelessness. And really, in order to do that, you really have to focus on the homeless population, you know, right. to figure that out. Nobody is going to know why people are homeless besides the people themselves, because it right. probably is different in every situation. I think there are numbers on that, and I do think that there are reports on that, especially in the point-in-time count. I can't lay out all of the percentages, but there is a good healthy section of the of the report that, you know, that focuses on why people report having become homeless. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk about the point-in-time count and some of the data that we do have because I think that that also speaks to the perceptions that we have about homelessness, which Sylvia and I also talked about. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that you recently wrote about is that 39% of the roughly 8,000 homeless residents recorded in 2019 in San Francisco uh, said that they suffered from psychiatric or emotional conditions. And 37% reported suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Doesn't living on the street inherently cause trauma? Isn't it traumatic? I think, I believe it is extremely traumatic. Um, there is, I, I could not imagine all of the things that we don't necessarily know or hear about that happen um, aside from just the normal struggle of being outside constantly. Despite the number actually increasing um, in the homeless count, those percentages actually remained roughly the same. The roughly 37% suffered from mental or emotional issues, and roughly the same percentage suffer from PTSD, while the number is actually growing, uh, grew from 2017 to 2019. So perhaps that's true. Perhaps people are being traumatized by their own uh, homelessness. I, I I can't say for sure, though. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. Well, I ask because I think that there is a tendency to assume that there's a connection between the cause and mental illness rather than mental illness arising out of homelessness or after a person has become homeless or being exacerbated by being homeless. And we saw this with the recent case of a woman who was attacked by somebody who ostensibly was homeless and mentally ill. Yes. And there being this sort of public outcry about having to address the problem of people who are yeah. mentally ill and yeah. living on the street. Well, first of all, there's a suggestion that mental illness is dangerous to other people who don't have it. Mm -hmm. And second, there's this assumption that people have become homeless because they're mentally ill and unstable and somehow not able to be housed or, or resistant to services, which is also a phrase that comes up a lot. You know, initially, you know, coming to San Francisco, I grew up in Concord and Walnut Creek, and there are very few homeless people out there. At least, you know, at least when I was growing up, there are very few homeless people out there. And, and then coming into San Francisco and being sort of confronted by it and seeing the number of people that seemed mentally unwell, at a very sort of basic level, you think, wow, I could be attacked perhaps at any moment in time. And kid coming from the suburbs, of course, that's what you think. But actually, you know, it is surprising that that's not really the case. I, I don't think that's the correct assumption to make. I don't think that, you know, people, people have a tendency towards violence. There's another statistic in your recent reporting, which is that around 3,000 homeless people, according to the latest point in time count, 
are what's called chronically homeless. And they also have, quote, a disabling condition that prevents them from maintaining work or housing, end quote. So that strikes me as interesting because that does suggest that there's a link between people's stability and and their ability to maintain housing or a job. Yes. And that's a 42% increase in chronic homelessness from 2017. Does that does that say anything to you? What stands out to you about those numbers? I do think that there are definitely more homeless people. There was a 17% increase. So that uh, and <clears throat> that um, the conditions for them are getting worse. While the number is rising, there are people staying on the streets longer with no other housing options. You know, we're not taking care of these people. They are becoming more chronically homeless. People are becoming more homeless as time as time goes on. And I believe that, you know, as you mentioned earlier with the PTSD of living on the street, I do believe that that, that prevents people from being able to stay in housing situations or stay in situations that are not necessarily amenable to their needs. This takes a lot of resources and it takes a lot of services to to tailor to these people's needs. Yeah. Let's illustrate this with an example. Okay. You just wrote an amazing story about John Ratliff, who people might know as Swan. He has been for many years basically a fixture of the 16th and Mission Bart Plaza, and he feeds the pigeons. Can you tell us a little bit about who John Ratliff is and what he's known for? It's really interesting. Ratliff is a very old man. He told me he was 78 years old. He has for at least the last couple decades, perhaps more, he has been really just part of the fabric of the 16th Street Plaza. I remember when I first saw him coming into San Francisco about five years ago, he was just covered in pigeons and they were just flocking around him. I was just like, that is a very intense sight to see. But, you know, as I started reporting and as I started speaking to people who knew him, he is a poet. He produces regularly, actually with astonishing regularity, his zine, uh, in which he writes very flowingly about animals and times you see a little bit of a window into himself and just respect for living creatures. And he writes a lot about the soul. So a lot of people know him because he was memorialized in a, in a mural. He was, you know, he's just been a part of the mission and people know him for that. And he also, in a past life, amazingly, was an award-winning journalist. He worked for big places like the Associated Press, I believe, you know, other large network stations um, in Illinois. Um, but it's unclear how he got out here. And I do believe that his mental illness, which his family told me he has and his friends uh, have told me that he has, have contributed to his moving outside and staying there. So several months ago, he spent a few months in the hospital. How did that happen, and how did you learn about it? So after the last time he was released from the hospital sometime in February, his friend and also another sort of character from the 16th Street community, Kenshin Shimeyama, noticed that he was out and that his legs were not doing well. Actually, when he showed me more recently, he lifted up his pants and showed me that it didn't look like he had skin on his legs and they, they were covered in, in pus. And this condition, I believe he was in the hospital for uh, back in February and Shimeyama noticed him. He wrote on Facebook in February that we need to raise just $60 to get John Ratliff a walker so he can actually move this caught the eye of uh, BART uh, board director Bevan Dufty. Uh, Bevan Dufty was uh, once uh, the person who oversaw homelessness in San Francisco. He was the so-called homeless czar. 
he declined to go into too many specifics with me, said that he coordinated with the city to get the hot team out to convince Ratliff to essentially go inside to get it to temporary emergency housing. And then what? Because he's back on the street now. Uh, this is the trouble with somebody like Ratliff. In fact, he ha- was reluctant to go inside even when Dufty had initially noticed him, and Dufty had told me that he had tried to find solutions for Ratliff, but he was too afraid to spend his meager social security check on housing because he needed enough to feed the birds. He really cares about the birds. And so getting him inside, even with the help of uh, Shimiyama, the hot team, was a huge challenge. And but they did, right? He they was did. inside for a time, even after he came out of the hospital. Yes. Yeah, so they Where was pu- he living? He was living in the 16th Street Hotel, which is an, uh, a single-room occupancy hotel. He stayed there for several months. And then he started to notice, and this is what he told me, and this is what some uh, an anonymous employee at the hotel told me, that he was feeding seagulls and birds from his fifth-floor room, from the window of his fifth-floor room, onto the neighboring roof. And uh, somehow the hotel management caught on to this. Uh, they told him to stop doing that. He, would, he said that he would get meals on wheels and that he would give them what, whatever he uh, wasn't eating. He was throwing that stuff on the roof. And um, this persisted to a point where they said, you cannot stay here anymore. You're, you're breaking our rules. And they threw him out. That's what the employee told me. And that's what Ratliff told me. I think that it's amazing that he was put into a housing situation that was not understanding to his mental illness. His friend Shimiyama uh, felt that it was amazing. And he actually kind of foresaw this happening is that case management, the, the city's case management system, the SRO's management were not necessarily going to be accommodating to somebody who does not fit into this little, you know, box of what they need him to be and to follow the rules. He's 78 years old. He spent decades out on the streets. He suffers from mental illness. How can you expect a person like this just to be inside and then, as they say, quote unquote, move up to something better? Well, so it's I find it fascinating that Bevan Dufty is quoted in your story as saying that you know, John Ratliff shouldn't be living outside, but this happens a lot. He said he often sees people at the highest level of need being evicted for what he calls minor nuisances like hoarding. And I think there's an argument to be made that hoarding is not terribly minor if you're blocking things like emergency exits. Sure, but sure. Th- but these are not things like not paying your rent. Not right? paying your rent or being violent. There aren't enough places for people like Ratliff to go. Not enough uh, re- resources to accommodate um, and to tailor services towards towards people like Ratliff, who and and I do think that this that because of this lack the lack of these resources, we do see more mentally ill people on the streets, essentially just waiting to die. But I think there's also another big picture problem here, which Mission Local reported on, which is that the city is aiming to repurpose 41 beds at San Francisco General Hospital that are meant for permanently housing the severely mentally ill and turn them into a temporary homeless shelter. And those beds have also been largely left unfilled for years. Can you tell us a little bit more about what um, Joe Eskenazi's reporting on that showed and, and how that fits into this picture with John Ratliff? I believe their excuse was that they could not properly staff that that unit and and accommodate for more people. And so it was so the number of people being uh, able to be admitted into that unit of the hospital 
was kept low. But that is astounding to me, and I believe it should be astounding to everybody that with cases like Ratliff's and, you know, cases where you do have, you know, quite a few people, high-need individuals, chronically homeless, high-need individuals suffering from mental illness, that there was actual housing for them with the kind of services that they need being, being underutilized. And now the mayor is coming in and saying that she wants to turn it into a temporary respite where people can stop in for a matter of weeks and then be essentially let back out on the streets again, you know, for their conditions to go exactly back to back to where they were, just like uh, just like Ratliff, where he was in and he's been in and out of the hospitals three times. They have taken they took care of his legs, which are in just a shocking. It is shocking how how bad they are. He goes in, they get better and then they release him back out onto the streets and they get bad again. I do wonder what these temporary beds will actually do for people other than reduce the visibility of homelessness. And I believe that that sadly that is the strategy. So while the new navigation center beds will take people off the streets and take a certain percentage of people off the streets, it's not getting to the to the cause of the issue and it's not helping people like uh, John Ratliff. Well, Julian, thanks for writing the story and for talking with me about it. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. KSFP would like to thank the awesome, forward-thinking institutional supporters of the San Francisco Public Press, including the San Francisco Foundation, the James Irvine Foundation, the Reva and David Logan Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation, the Fund for Nonprofit News at the Miami Foundation, the Fund for Investigative Journalism, the California Endowment, the Center for Cultural Innovation, the Institute for Nonprofit News, and the local independent online news publishers. This is KSFP-LP San Francisco, 102.5 FM. We're looking at a now-shelved plan to create an oversight body for the city's Department of Homelessness. I spoke with Sam Liu, policy director for the Coalition on Homelessness, which is an advocacy group. At the time we talked, the proposal was still on the table and could have become a ballot measure. Shortly after the interview, city supervisors voted to table it. The proposal's sponsors are interested in bringing it back next spring. Sam, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So I want to start by talking about this potential new oversight body for the, the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. And this would be a new commission. Is that right? That's correct. So what would this look like ideally for you um, as as somebody who works with the Coalition on Homelessness, who works closely with people who are experiencing homelessness? What would like the main purpose of a new oversight body be? There are so many reasons why we are excited about having a homelessness commission and an oversight body. Um, And one of the things that we don't see right now is having um, 
sort of a public forum for people who have experienced homelessness, for concerned citizens, for um, social service providers or homeless advocates to really have a venue to say, hey, this is something that we'd like to see or this is something that's been going on that we don't want to see anymore. Um, And to have a body that has the power to actually change a policy. Um, Currently, there's the local homeless coordinating board Um, but it is a federally mandated body that only has advisory powers. So they essentially don't have any authority over what the Department of Homelessness does. So the Homeless Coordinating Board, you said this is mandated by the federal government. If it's mandated by the federal government as a body that has some kind of oversight, but it doesn't actually have any teeth, how does this work? Like, what do they do? Um, One of the things that they're tasked with is overseeing federal grants. Um, They also are supposed to um, assist with the point-in-time count, which is essentially a count of the homeless population that occurs every two years. Um, And they also oversee the continuum of care, but I think... A lot of that is really um, theoretical, and in practice, the local homeless coordinating board meets on a monthly basis. Um, There is public comment for people to um, discuss various issues, but essentially it's a place where the department says, hey, this is how we've been doing for the past month. Um, There are some questions and answers going back and forth between board members and the department, um, but not much else really moves. The other really important thing about a commission is that commissions are required to have um, public review of their budgets before they submit it to the mayor. And currently, without a commission, there is no way for anyone to know what will be in next year's budget in the Department of Homelessness. And this is a really important avenue where homeless people themselves, where advocates, citizens can provide input and feedback to the department's budget. But without that avenue, we're left in the dark. What we're talking about is not chump change. This is not a small department. It has, I think, 50 people working on one project, which we're going to talk about later, the um, coordinated entry system. So it's not a small department. And does it currently have any kind of oversight? Currently, there's no oversight with real authority. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah. And it's one of the largest departments with no oversight. And so what we're really asking for is that there is accountability, and there is responsible policymaking within that department. San Francisco Weekly wrote about this potential new commission and wrote that the department right now has six different advisory committees, five of which are currently operating. Can you tell me a little bit more about the advisory committees that advise the Department of Homelessness? Sure. There's the Shelter Monitoring Committee. There's the Shelter Advisory Grievance Committee. There is the Local Homeless Coordinating Board. And I am unaware of the other ones that advise, but those aren't bodies that we interact with, the ones that I am unaware of. Okay. Um, And there is, and this is a little bit separate, but the home um, HSOC, which is the Healthy Streets Operations Center, sort of a mashup of SFPD, DPW, DPH, and HSH that is supposedly working on getting people who are directly on the streets, our encampments, into services and housing. But essentially what they're doing is displacing people um, 
harassing them and really not giving them any sort of services. But that body has no oversight because it it really is um, a mixture of many different departments. So, for example, DPH has the Health Commission, but because it, it's a mixture of so many different departments, no one is overseeing it at all. HSAC, isn't that operated primarily by the police department? Yes. And so it's really the city saying, we're going to approach homelessness with police. And does the, that's a separate issue, but does, doesn't the police commission get any say on how the police operates its homelessness interactions with people experiencing homelessness? You would think, um, but their first meeting around HSOC will be happening in August. And HSOC has been around, um, I think, for the past eight months to a year. And that's a year of people's civil liberties being violated, their things being confiscated and thrown away and destroyed, uh, and essentially no services being offered to homeless people who this is happening to. But going back to the HSH Commission, one of the things that I wanted to mention around how important it is for there to to be um, an oversight body over really important policies that impact our most vulnerable people who are living on the streets is, um, one example is the homeless pregnant individual policy. So this is a policy that we and many, many other community organizations have been trying to change for the past three years. Um, What does it say? The policy is that if you are pregnant and homeless, you cannot enter family shelter until your third trimester. That is something to us that is a no-brainer that if you are pregnant and homeless, you should be able to access family shelter. Um, dozens of doctors have said that this is really should be a priority of the department. Um, and it's been pulling teeth with them to change anything. Just last week, they came out with their policy change, um, which essentially says if, and this is a draft, um, but during the, the meeting, they said that Essentially, nothing would change except that if you're unsheltered, pregnant, and homeless, um, you would be able to get into a navigation center, and this would affect five to six people. And I think policies like this that take years to change, and when there is a change, it is nothing that the community has been pushing for, really makes us believe that an oversight commission is necessary because they would be able to review and approve or deny any policies that the department proposes in a real way. And if you had this commission, how would you go about encouraging real change that you, as somebody who works with this community, want to see? The Well, members of the commission, the, the way that the, the commission body um, would be set up is that there would be seven members, three from the appointed by the mayor, three appointed by the board of supervisors, and one appointed by the controller's office. But each seat is set up so that there are experts and people with lived experience of homelessness on the body so that they could really make informed decisions. 
um, and they would also be listening to community members as well. And really taking that into account, we'd have a really balanced um, group of people to make decisions with the Department of Homelessness rather than the Department of Homelessness being able to change policy without any say. So the commission would have actual input on new policies or policy changes? Yes. So every new policy would have to be presented to the commission and then approved or denied. And that's really important to us. Can you say a little bit more about why and how that would affect you as an organization as the Coalition on Homelessness? Sure. Um, There are a lot of policies that we disagree with. For example, the policy around homeless pregnant women where women aren't able to get in until their third trimester. We aren't able to do anything except really beg and plead with the department to change that policy. But with something like the Oversight Commission, we'd be able to have the department review a policy change like that in front of a balanced body who would then be able to approve or deny a change. And so it's really another avenue where we can um, create change. One of the people who spoke at one of the earlier hearings on this potential oversight committee, Malia Chavez, she's the co-chair of the Homeless Emergency Service Providers Association, and she also works with the um, homeless prenatal program. She said providers are constantly asked to be more accountable, and they should expect to be able to say the same thing to the department. Do you experience that ever at the Coalition on Homelessness, that there's outside pressure to be accountable to somebody, but you can't go to the department and say, listen, you also need to be accountable? For our organization? Mm -hmm. I think our organization is a little bit different because we don't receive city funding um, and who we are accountable to are homeless people. We listen to homeless people every single day who are living in the shelters, the streets, the drop-in centers. um, And that is how we um, create and develop our policy priorities. So it might be a little different in that sense. Sure. Um, but, but I would say that there aren't really any avenues for the department to be accountable to homeless people. One of the most important things that the Homelessness Commission would be able to do as well is review and approve changes to coordinated entry and who is eligible under coordinated entry. That's really important because currently under family coordinated entry, Families who are living in single-room occupancies and families who are doubled up are barred from even entering into the system. And with something like the Homelessness Commission, they'd be able to try to make that change so that those families can be in the system. That was Sam Liu with the nonprofit Coalition on Homelessness. You've been listening to Civic. I'm Laura Wenis. Civic is a production of the San Francisco Public Press. Host and reporter, Laura Wenis. Producer and contributor, Mel Baker. Our theme music was composed and arranged by John Dillon. Additional music from the Blue Dot Sessions. The publisher of the San Francisco Public Press is Lila LaHood. Executive Director, Michael Stoll. Director of Membership and Community, Daphne Magnawa. Associate Editor, Noah Arroyo. Thanks for listening.